the Arthropod. The Arthropod is the home for the wonderful, weird, wacky world of insects. Hosted by Jonathan Larson, Jody Green, and Michael Scavarla. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Um, I would say that the three of these people don't really need much of an introduction. <laughs> Most of you have met them at one point or another or interacted with them today. Uh, I met them through their incredible science communication arthropod. Um, so listen to the forensic entomology episode. <laughs> um, but I'm going to let them uh, explain who they are and why they're here. Thank you. We are all Purdue grads. We're going to go through a little bit of our story here today about what we did after Purdue and how we got to the podcast and how we got to today. So we are Arthropod, your entomology podcast. That's how we introduce each show. Uh, we're going to go through a little profile for each of us and kind of talk about where we came from. So this was like a height of COVID here. That's my pandemic hair. Uh, that's Mike and his pandemic pod. Jody being excited at ESA, I think, maybe a few years ago. Uh, but we're going to kind of talk about where we all, how we all got here, I guess. So when I started here at Purdue, uh, I am from Tipton, Indiana, so I'm a native of Indiana. I did 4-H in my home county for about 10 years. It was a terrible 4-H program, but it was something that got me started in entomology. Uh, I entered one year in the entomology project because I read about it in the manual. That sounds really interesting. I kind of like bugs. I'll give it a show or give it a go. And I entered stuff into the fair. I think one of my insects was still twitching. I think I caught it right before I walked inside and I turned it in and I waited a few hours and I won the purple ribbon. I got invited to the state fair. I was very excited, but I was the only entrant. So it's not really that impressive of an achievement. <laughs> but when you got invited to the state fair back then, eventually you would be invited to the day in the department, which was an outreach event here in the Department of Entomology. So I was 14. I came here, uh, I was on a tour, Jody was part of the tour, uh, we were walking us around and we went into this lab and there was this graduate student and she had these termites and arenas and then she made them fight and they were different colors and I was like, they pay people to do this? Like, this is a job opportunity? And then we went to Dr. Turpin's class and I got to see him speak. And I was like, everybody here is weird and wild and mostly Canadian, so I think I kind of want to go here. Uh, it was something that was really awe-inspiring, and I had been looking for kind of a science that would allow me to talk to people, and so I started volunteering then. A lot of the people that knew me back in the day, they thought that I got my undergrad and master's here. <laughs> I volunteered since uh, starting when I was four or 15, so I was coming up when I was 15 and 16 and 17, uh, and then I did my undergrad, so people thought I got both degrees here, but I really only got one. Uh, I was here for four years uh, doing bug bowl and all kinds of cool stuff, worked with Cliff Sadoff. Uh, in the horticultural lab, and that led to my work at uh, the University of Kentucky, where I worked with Dan Potter. Uh, my research was focused on the ecotoxicology of turf grass insecticides. I worked a lot with bumblebees. This is us putting in some tent, putting them in some tents that has treated clover, so they can feed on the clover, and then we would remove them and take them to a fancy horse farm that didn't use any insecticides, so they could forage on non-treated stuff. And we were able to show all these negative effects of certain products that would go out in lawns. Uh, and how to mitigate those negative effects. And I got to do a lot of extension. I did about 30 or 35 extension talks as a graduate student. And I got really enthralled with being a part of that world, which led to my work in Nebraska, where I was for five years. I was there from 2014 to 2019. I re-met Jody Green out there. She got hired in 2016, and we got to be Team J Squared, I think was what we called ourselves. Uh, we would go around and do things like the Bed by Road Show, 
Uh, we're at BugFest here, the University of Nebraska-Lincoln version of Bug Bowl. Uh, I was on TV with Backyard Farmer, the longest-running non-syndicated television program in American history. Uh, it's a garden panel show, and Jody's on there still today. Uh, it's a lot of fun. But I also got to focus on bed bugs, a lot of invasive species stuff. They had just started getting emerald ash borer when I moved there. So I got to be kind of at the forefront of that and a lot of pesticide safety education. And then I left there and went back to Kentucky. I took a job in 2019. I started about six months before COVID. Really good timing for a new faculty person. Um, when I got there, uh, the purview that I was given is pretty broad. I have an 85% extension appointment, 15% teaching. Uh, I work in landscapes, trees, nursery crops, high tunnels, greenhouses, public health tests, and households, as well as master gardener training and pesticide safety training. So just a few things uh, to kind of do extension with. Uh, we do a lot of training for agents. We did two certification programs for them last year about doing biocontrol in high tunnels, uh, IPM in high tunnels, as well as uh, horticultural basics, so pests that are problems on the plants. I uh, did about 89 extension talks last year. And I started an asynchronous course for our online degree program that was focused on IPM. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. I'm very excited about it and for the future. But now Jody's going to talk about how she got onto the podcast. So I came from Canada. And my background, actually, I studied old people. So I did gerontology. And then I did environmental pest management. And what changed my life is like that guy right there over here. <laughs> because I wanted to know more about insects. And so I reached out to him and was like, why don't you come to Purdue? I didn't even know where that was. So this is where I grew up. This is where I started a new life. And then actually I met that guy and that's my child. But, <laughs> and now I'm in Nebraska. So that's where Nebraska is because most times in Canada, everyone's like, so how's, what? not Omaha, it's something else. <laughs> and I'm like, no, Omaha, it's the middle of, of the US. But my life in the Department of Entomology, like, just completely changed my life. But I was not a very serious student. I don't know if you knew that. But I loved being part of the department. I was a very social creature. And this actually helped me a lot in the job I have today. So I'll talk a little bit about that. But, like, I was always into outreach. I always wanted to go to Bug Bowl and spit crickets and touch things and have everyone else and share that like love of insects. Hung out a lot at the Corex. I did a lot of things with the grad student organization. We did bug and brew. So it was like a monthly, like, let's go visit a bar. And you can see all of the different people. And some of you are in this, um, you know, dressing up in costumes and going for runs, going camping, canoeing, all that. Uh, and I even gardened in the uh, village gardens that don't, do they even exist anymore? But I'm on this garden show, so I've had to uh, learn how to do that. But my specialty is urban entomology and uh, urban IPM. And so I'm, this is like the applied science. And what I do is help people make better decisions. So I help them with their problems. These are some of the things I mainly talk about. I talk a lot about bed bugs, but I also go into brown recluse spiders and ticks and anything that comes up in my area. So this is the state of Nebraska, and there are 93 counties. We're a land-grade university at UNL, and so my appointment is 100% extension, and I am not in the Department of Entomology. I am in a county office. So I'm the only entomologist I interact with on a daily basis. So unlike many of you who have each other and you teach students, there's just me. And so I am 
responsible for these counties here, and that's uh, three quarters of a million people. And so any of them can contact me when they want. There are two of us who are considered urban entomologists, and even these rural areas will have urban paths. So they will email us, they will call us. I have about um, 800 insect IDs or inquiries a year, but most of the time I'm doing like, I'm all over the place. So I deal with media. I also um, go up to gardens and I help with the IPM as some master gardeners so that we can donate more food to the food pantry. So we've, you know, our goal is like 10,000 pounds of produce to donate to um, the working poor. And I go up there and we talk about IPM. So we're actually um, performing those things without pesticides in some cases. Um, I'm on that show that Jonathan talked about. And with Extension, we go out and we meet people where they're at. So like this is a garage in at the cemetery talking to uh, workers who are out maintaining like trees and uh, the, the lawns and the turf out there. Um, I give talks to all different kinds of groups. So it could be like school nurses, it could be health professionals, it's whoever um, comes and asks for help. And also we will reach out and we go, we'll host people in our office and we'll also um, you know go to conferences. So I'll travel somewhere and someone will say, I need a bed bug talk. These are the audience and this is how long we want it to be for. So I can talk about bed bugs for like 20 minutes or three hours. So it's, I have to tailor it that way. But a lot of the things that I do are provide resources for our you know, constituents in our counties. And so the funding that I do get when I am able to get grants is to translate documents and to distribute them so we can do that online, we do that through mailing and at events. So if I'm at somewhere, we've got um, you know, different brochures, a lot of it's bed bugs and urban paths, but I also you know, tailor infographics to uh, places where I feel that there's a need. So this one for small flies was designed for pest management professionals because they also bring in their pests and wanna know from their clients what those insects are. So I was like, okay, when it comes to IPM, we don't need to spray for these things. We need to figure out where they're coming from and get to the source. So identification and then, you know, solve the problem. So we tailor these products um, designed to whoever's using them. So you can see it's very similar to the template. And that one's designed for early childhood educators. And this one's for master gardeners to try to teach them, you know, when they're looking at something, uh, a plant, is that something that's an abiotic or um, biotic um, damage? And then our bed bug ID cards, these were uh, basically, I mean, we give them out to all health departments um, in Nebraska, and we've had people actually ask for them, like the template to, to give out. They're really hard cards, and you can use them to squish bed bugs, but also people are using them as, as rulers. I also combine science and art to educate um, entomology in different ways. So um, I'm, I'm going out to talk about like how ticks quest. And so I made this tick and I made how Velcro legs. So it's like, this is what happens. And I pass the piece of Velcro and on, I get to do this on TV. And this is how it works. Like when everyone's like, they're falling from the trees. I'm like, no, they're not. This is how this works. Um, I made this uh, headlight, headlight, headlight out of like, you know, the micro centrifuge tubes to show that nits, when they are laid on the shaft of the hair, they're not gonna come out whether they're viable or not. Um, this was a meeting, I was just combing a head of hair. Everyone's like, what is happening? 
Um, and I was like, it's Princess Coraline. I'm showing you how to comb hair properly because you don't need to use the pesticide in the hair if you remove the, the, the headlights. And then um, Jonathan talked about our bed bug roadshow. So it's really using creative ways to get the, the point across to teach. And this was to help people. Uh, we, you know, we say, oh, inspect the bag. How do you do that? What, you know, what is the bag? Because it's just because a bug is found in the bed doesn't mean it's a bed bug. So I get to incorporate a lot of who I am into my job, which is why, you know, I can really enjoy and love my job because there's stuff that you have to do, but then there's stuff that I get to do. And um, so that's part of participating in this podcast because this, is a, this isn't really part of my job. This is something that I enjoy doing. And if you can see, this is the first time the three of us have been together since uh, 2019, um, ESA. But like we were together in this photo in 2007 and we didn't really know. Um, <laughs> there we are. There's, uh, you know, Mike and his smolder. <laughs> <laughs> Here. And I'll round it out. Um, so when I was here, I worked primarily in Jeff Holland's lab, looking at uh, non-target insects on purple uh, emerald ash floor traps. But after here, went to the University of Arkansas for both my master's and PhD, where I worked on mite taxonomy and systematics and, and forest biodiversity. And then went to the USDA uh, to work on aphid taxonomy. I, said I'd never work on aphids before I went there, but that was the only postdoc I could get. Um, <laughs> turns out they're really cool if you want to talk about aphids after this. Um, and from there, I went to Penn State. So I'm in the Department of Entomology. I've got a 100% extension appointment. And I run the insect identification lab, um, which includes, you know, I often get photos of really easily identifiable stuff, blurry, but still identifiable stuff, uh, not identifiable at all of plants, <laughs> um, so it really runs the gamut of what's coming in. Uh, as you can imagine, in an insect ID lab, most of my stuff comes in, or most of my ID requests come in in the summer. Uh, so what am I doing like in January and March when not a lot is coming in? Well, my department head's like, well, keep busy. Just be productive. Do what you want. So I work, uh, create and maintain a whole bunch of fact sheets and articles. I give talks, media interviews. Um, I also do a little bit of collaborative research. So even though I've got a, an extension appointment, um, I do try to keep my foot in research because I can't stop myself. Uh, and so this work is primarily with deer kids that were coming into the lab. They were biting people. And we don't have answers like, do these transmit pathogens? Well, I can't tell you because nobody knows. Um, so I teamed up with our veterinary entomology lab, and we have been doing a lot of deer kid research, pulling uh, deer heads off deer at deer processors um, and doing things like uh, insecticide or uh, insect repellent trials, like how do you keep these things off of you? Uh, so that's kind of who we are and where we're all coming from and kind of what we're bringing to this podcast. So I'm going to turn it back over to John. We did have Crystal on as a guest. She invited us here to talk about the podcast and we wanted to talk a little bit about why we're entomologists that are making this kind of material. And to do that, I kind of wanted to start with a little bit of the history of podcasts. It won't go for very long, so don't fall asleep. Uh, podcasts are primarily audio entertainment programs. Uh, they're also educational programs. They are capable of being published due to something called RSS feeds, which stands for really simple syndication. Um, it works on blogs, it works for podcasts, and this allows for the internet to catalog and publish these things so that we can put them out there. 
but then it also allows for things called pod catchers to come along and then snag them and put them on your phone or on your laptop. So some of you may use Apple Podcasts or Google Play, maybe use Spotify or uh, Podcast Addict, whichever it is that you prefer to use. These are the reasons that we're able to make shows like this. And if you look at the history of podcasts, it kind of goes all the way back to the year 2000. That was when the first podcasts, the first idea of podcasts were published. But then they didn't really take off until 2004 when a show called The Daily Source Code was published. It was something that was put out by a computer programmer. I think it was kind of a slice of life and news podcast. I haven't been able to listen to it myself uh, but it resulted in Time Magazine declaring 2005 the year of the podcast, which I found very interesting as somebody living in 2023. Um, that was the year that they got on the scene and people really started to take note of them. Um, then there were other people that started picking this up and trying to do something with it. And we'll see uh, some history of entomologists doing that here in a moment. But I think that you can divide podcasts into these kind of three eras. And the second era is in 2014 when Serial was published. Serial was a podcast, a true crime podcast that maybe some of you listen to. It exploded the podcast market. People were obsessed with that show. And it really kind of ignited this idea that everybody could podcast. Journalism should be a part of podcasts. And this is when we see Apple Podcasts actually reach 1 billion subscriptions. So we start to see this become kind of a bona fide medium at that point. And then the third epoch that I have is the 2020 pan, uh, pandemic podcast era where people all got sent home. We all suddenly had these microphones and a bunch of people decided I could make a podcast. And a lot of them went for like one episode or two. Uh, and then they kind of faltered. But there was a big boom again in people being interested in this medium, listening and trying to understand it. And so in this kind of milieu, uh, we have seen entomology show up multiple times. The first entomology podcast, according to sort of the publication record, is Bugcast by Marlon Rice. He used to be at Iowa State. Maybe Tom's going to fight me on this here in a few minutes, but uh, he is the one that first published on this. He put his show out in 2006. Uh, his American Entomologist article came out in 2007. This is an iPod. Uh, for those of you in the crowd, you maybe are familiar with this technology. You can see this was his show back then. Uh, it had actually some video components to it, so it wasn't what we maybe consider a full podcast today. Uh, but he was sort of putting out in 2007, this is something we should be doing. This is a really good idea. And Tom, I don't know, did you read that article back then, or did you have this kind of idea separate from it? For Maybe we had an idea before that. Yeah? <laughs> let, well, okay, let me hear it. Yeah. Could you could you tell me more about that? Because I'm just going off of what I can see in the published record. Well, in Six Lakes column was written, and then the people over in Ag Information decided it ought to be recorded uh, audio, and it was put out as an audio cast uh, for an I think there were 150 some bi-weekly uh, audio of that column. Right. And you were the longest running insect podcast on in history, from what I could tell. The earliest one that I could find online was from 2007. So did you have some before that? or I, in, to my knowledge, uh, it first went out in 2006. Okay. Okay. Uh, the well, podcatchers must have missed us first. That's, that's a B plus. B plus. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Uh, when the uh, we see another article come out in 09 that was about the insectopod cast. Uh, you'll notice that all of these miss arthropod, which I thought was a very obvious podcast thing for insects. Uh, but insectopod, this was from Michigan State. They were publishing about what they were doing, which was sort of, they said they take a lot of uh, inspiration from documentaries. So they also had some film in their podcast. 
on six legs was two to five minute segments, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it went for a long time, especially if you include the successor podcast, Dr. Gibbs' Spineless Wonders, that also ran uh, after on six legs ended. Uh, as of 2023, if you look at the podcast market for insecting podcasts, there are quite a few that are out there. These are the ones that are most active that I can find online. If there's any fly fishers in the audience, we've got the Angler's Entomology podcast. I always think my show is very niche, but uh, that seems extremely uh, close up for me. Uh, Michigan State has the Bug Talk Show, which is their graduate students interviewing different people uh, that are experts in their department and abroad. Little Dudes Insect Academy, which I was always under the impression was a nine-year-old child. Found out last night he is now 19. Uh, still doing the show. So the not so little dude anymore. Uh, Iowa State, they have the Soybean Pest Podcast, which only publishes during the soybean pest season. It's all about IPM for those pests. Uh, it's been around since around 2009. Insect View, I can't remember the dynamic. One of these two people is sort of a funny comedian type, and one of them is an aspiring entomologist. They're siblings. And they're siblings. And the conceit is that they get on and kind of make fun of bugs and have a good time. Uh, there are others. There's one called Grubbin' in the Dirt. What was the other one you told me about recently? Uh, I forget. Well, yeah, we forget. <laughs> There's a few about it. Uh, entomology also appears frequently on things like ologies and stuff you should know and other science themed podcasts, but these are the ones that are really honed in on the science. The reason that I started this uh, was I got hired at the University of Nebraska Lincoln as an extension educator. And when I started working there, I was put on a team, the community urban developer, what is it called? Water, the environment, and food, or something to that effect. I was the only person under 30. And they all were like, you are our token millennial. Please do something with the internet. Thank you. <laughs> and I said, okay. And I already had some podcast equipment from stuff I had done with some friends. I looked at some other options and I really felt that podcasting felt uh, like it fit the cooperative extension budget, which is pictured here. And I was able to put this together for basically nothing. Uh, I bought a few new things uh, with a couple of hundred dollars, but it was a very cheap entry point. And it was something that was kind of novel and unique. And we were off to the races. I did it on my own for about two years, three years. I did 30 episodes alone, about 10 a year. I experienced what we call pod fading. Uh, this is a very common phenomenon. Unfortunately, the Apple podcast, they did a study in 2021. And they said they had 2.4 million published podcasts. But in the month that they looked, uh, looked only 21% were actually active. So there's a lot of podcasts out there. But a lot of people start their show and then they don't go too far with it. About 75% of podcasts die after one episode. Of the 30% that are left, you see most of those die after eight episodes. So I think it's only 20% of podcasts somewhere in there uh, that get started. They end up actually making it all the way. So I started to think about how to do this uh, better and differently. And I invited Jody and Mike for our what we call Arthropod 2.0. Mike used to just be a computer machine for us because Jody and I were both in Nebraska, uh, but we relaunched the show and it's been a lot of fun and I would say a big success since then. And it's helped us to do some of this work that Jody's going to cover. So how do we not pod fade? Because we are all busy and we're all in different places in the U.S. So we really commit to doing this. Mostly I only do things that are fun. So we... Book two hours every two weeks, so like twice a month, and that's two hours with the host of a one-hour episode, and that doesn't count the time that it takes to edit and research and find our guests and then, you know, record and put it out there. 
but we are independently produced. So even though we belong to different institutions, they don't have any say or anything. Like my institution does definitely doesn't care too much about it. That's not part of my metrics. Whereas maybe um, like Mike's department knows about it. But um, we communicate with each other through text messages, through email. We share files so that we can take turns editing. So that really does help to spread um, spread the workload. And uh, the problem is, though, we rely on technology, but we also re rely on space. And so we don't want it. You know, we have to have a space that's quiet for each of us. And sometimes we've got like dogs and kids running by. So that's what we do to keep it going. We, our content is usually, it's kind of all over the place. So like it's entomology, entomology broad, um, but we want to share like new topics with people, but we also want to keep up with like timely issues. And also we can dive deep into some others. So some of our general things is like, hey, uh, let's talk about life. And I think that episode was called like head and body seams and pubes. But like <laughs> things that we probably don't always think about, but it's to bring like these things are part of life. Uh, when the monarchs went on the uh, the list for endangered species or uh, the I yeah, I'm not good with acronyms. <laughs> we went and started talking about like the monarch butterfly and the migratory um, group of butterflies. When people start saying about the Chinese praying mantis, we need to get rid of them. Then we went and we had a, a podcast about that. And then when fall army worm hit in 2021, we started interviewing um, people about that who were knowledgeable about the turf path. We also have some uh, deep dives where they can be heavily scripted. Some of our uh, podcast episodes are just discussions among the three of us. So it's three of us or some combination, just the two of us. But these scripted episodes can be, uh, we've had the rise and fall of DDT. We've had carnivorous plants. Uh, Mike did like a six part series on Napoleon versus the insects. So there, it's a wide range of topics, but it gets uh, really fun. Sometimes we don't even know what the other is talking about. or We're just there to ask questions. Um, when these two got to experience the Brood 10, I felt left out. So I, you know, put together like a game show to ask them what they really knew about it. So it was, it's just a really fun uh, way to interact. Um, we also interview entomologists at various stages of their careers. We talk about their jobs, we talk about their research, but also what interests them. So if they don't necessarily want to talk about what they're doing now, they can talk about what they want to do. Um, we interviewed uh, Dr. Judy Lou Smart, who was alerted to a hazardous waste site um, because of her honeybee colonies, um, her research colonies dying in a small uh, town or village in Nebraska. We've talked to David Coyle, who is a forest health entomologist about the Asian longhorn beetle and when the draw spiders were the big deal because they were like giant, massive ballooning spiders that are taking over the East Coast and, you know, things like that. Um, we try to calm people down. Um, talk to Dr. Ashley Kennedy, who's a tick biologist in Delaware, but she wanted to talk about her research about insects and how they are part of the ecosystem and the food web. So that was really interesting too. And one of um, the highlights for me was I got to interview Dr. Um, Harold Harlan of, if you study bed bugs, the Harlan strain, um, he found bed bugs and he talked about the resurgence of bed bugs, but he found them in like four 
sticks in 1973 and kept them alive by feeding them himself. And that's why we have like this strain, the susceptible strain that everybody still today is testing um, bed bugs um, for insecticide resistance. So that was pretty cool. And we also have guests that are students that are aspiring entomologists, people that don't identify as entomologists yet. We have retired entomologists and people that are like, they identify as an author or they identify as um, an artist. And we want to know what entomology means to them. So where do we meet these people? We meet them in our departments, outside our institutions, um, at professional meetings, we've interviewed people. We've been asked to come to a share fair. So we interview uh, groups of people and multiple students walking by. So um, it's always very fun. And we do meet a lot of people on social media that we'll uh, we re reach out to and communicate back and forth. So it's always interesting to find out where everybody goes. The problem is, is that evaluation of what we're doing can be very difficult. So just because someone's listening doesn't mean they're going to go home and plant milkweed for butterflies, right? So, you know, despite this being an engaging form of communication, um, it's difficult to measure that impact. So, you know, we can entertain, but are we really educating? Um, and so thinking about impact is something that we do a lot in extension. Um, in an extension context, you maybe give a pre and a post survey trying to figure out what you, your audience has learned. Um, and that's really difficult in this podcast format. So what is the impact of arthropod? Um, it's really difficult to get at, but we can look at some of the different metrics that we can pull from the show. So for example, John mentioned we started in 2014 and we've run through the present. We've done 133 episodes plus an additional kind of 10 special shorter episodes for various things. We've had 156,000 total downloads. Um, with an average of about 1,100 downloads per episode. But this is a little, this is almost certainly an underestimate. So kind of the way we host the show on Internet Archive, we're only catching downloads. So if you stream the episode through Spotify or some other podcatcher, we don't capture that. And I know like me personally, I stream probably nine out of 10 episodes I listen to. So this is, we're probably way underestimating like how much uh, traction we're getting. Um, and as you can see, looking at the graph of downloads through time, like we've got ups, we've got downs, there's a lot of noise in terms of how many people are actually downloading these episodes. I broke the kind of episodes that we do into six different categories. So scripted episodes, these are ones that are heavily scripted, like we write a script and read it word for word. So those Napoleon episodes that I did were like this. Um, topic discussions where each one of us will pick a part of a topic. So for example, we did one on pheromones and each one of us picked something different about pheromones. We did a deep dive individually and then we come together, not so scripted, but we talk about that subject for an hour. Um, we have our interview episodes, what I'm calling ESA specials. This was a lot of John in the beginning. He'd run around at ESA and like try to interview people, but because there's like a lot of background noise, it's not quite as put together maybe as some of our other shows. Maybe listeners wouldn't like that. That's so much, so this is different. We've also done book and movie reviews. And so uh, here's the number of episode breakdowns. You can see topic discussions and interviews are kind of what we do most, uh, followed by scripted episodes and, and less of these other types. And if you look at the mean number of downloads for each one of these, you can see it's kind of, there's some variation. People seem to like our scripted episodes the most. Those have the most downloads. 
book discussions, maybe not so much. So maybe this is something we should like shy away from if it's not as popular. But again, there's a lot of variation in this data. And when you plot it out, it turns like in, and I actually ran an ANOVA on this because um, <laughs> why not? Um, there's no significant difference. Um, everything's overlapping. We've just got a lot of kind of noise in the number of downloads per episode. So it turns out like everybody likes everything, which is good. Good for us. Um, I also went through and looked at uh, for our interviewees, uh, the breakdown of male and female, we've actually not kept track of this. So it could be like maybe we've interviewed a lot more males than females or vice versa. And it turns out we're about even, which is good. We've, we've met parity without trying. Uh, thank goodness. Um, and again, if you look at the mean number of downloads, there's some variation. The males get maybe a little bit more traction with our listeners. Um, I wonder if that's a little bit concerning, but again, when you plot it out, there's no significant difference. Yay, our, our listeners aren't a bunch of misogynists that are listening <laughs> to men more than women. Uh, that's good. Uh, going back to look at the number of episodes, um, we did reach parity more or less. We're, we're even enough, close enough that I think we're doing pretty good. And when you look at that versus graduate students, um, this is from a 2016 study, so it's a little bit out of date now. Uh, you've got about 55% female, 45% males. Uh, we're basically even with that. So if you compare the people that we're interviewing versus, say, the grad student population, we're about one-to-one. -one. That's great. Uh, but when you start to look at the leaky pipeline of graduate students into uh, professors, we're not reflective of the gender breakdown in, say, professors, um, but I'm not sure that that's a bad thing, uh, given how skewed, say, full professorships are uh, towards males and females. Uh, another way to look at impact is the fact that we can cover these really timely topics. So, for example, when the murder hornet panic happened uh, and slammed my lab in May of 2020, um, we got a short, you can see it was only 20 minutes. It was a really short episode, but it was out four days after that story broke. So we were able to get kind of ahead of this thing and kind of calm at least our listeners' fears about maybe what was happening with murder ports. Everybody has told me about giant lace wings. Um, and when, you know, that story kind of made national media, again, we put out a short 27-minute uh, kind of the two of them interviewing me about like, okay, we've seen this story in the headlines, tell us the story. Um, I also had the audio of when I made that discovery in my class because I was recording it. And so we were able to cut that audio into the podcast because this is an audio format. So you get this kind of behind the scenes that you don't get in these stories. Uh, and maybe I think the thing that I've been most proud with uh, with Arthur Pond is um, two days after the full Russian invasion of Ukraine, I knew a Ukrainian via Twitter and I reached out to him and he came onto the show and we got an episode about entomology in Ukraine and the impact of this invasion two days after it happened. It was live on air and people could listen to like what's going to happen in Ukraine. Um, and we didn't know how the war was going to go at that point. Like it was still very much up in the air, like what was going to happen? Uh, and, and Victor here actually keep me and his professor his major professor was the head of the Schliemann Institute. He's a dipterist, uh, Valerie Kredai up here. Um, and he keep me like, Valerie's getting all of our holotypes out of Ukraine in case like the Institute gets bombed. 
Um, and so I managed to hook up with him after he got out and into Germany and interview him like what what was happening when you were evacuating these type specimens, trying to save them from this conflict. Um, and so I think this was of all the things we've done, some of the things that I've been most proud about um, and kind of you know impactful at least at least for me. Another way to look at impact is is our mailbag. We don't get very many listener emails. I was able to dig up nine. Um, <laughs> Four of them were from professional entomologists. Uh, three were from professionals in other fields, so people like working in nurseries. And then two were from non-professionals. So it seems like from this, we're getting a lot of professionals, but also it might just be that they're the most comfortable like reaching out to us directly. So we're, we've probably got um, a really strong filtering effect on this. And just to look at some of these emails, um, says, just wanted to say how much I enjoyed the podcast. That's great. Uh, I got accepted into an entomology bachelor's program. People keep asking me, what do I want to do with my entomology degree? The podcast has helped me gain insight on what's possible, uh, things like consulting, taxonomy, and curation. Thank you. That was really nice to hear. Here's another person. I'm an aspiring entomologist, big fan of the show, looking for some career advice. So they were reaching out to us directly, like, you're entomologists I can know. Please help me. And then one more I'm an avid listener of the Arthropod podcast. I'm a first-year graduate student researching the management of spotted lanternfly. I have to grow tree of heaven to feed spotted lanternfly. And I had just talked on the show about how I had a paper coming out about pest control on tree of heaven. And he said, he mentioned this paper um, about controlling pests. I'm also growing tree of heaven and have run into some pest problems. So he was able to get the paper from me before it actually came out. Um, and so that was another, again, it's hard to measure impact, but here's a direct kind of impact where I'm helping this person. If you look at our <coughs> reviews on Apple Podcasts, we've got 4.7 out of 5 with 49 reviews. Spotify, we're also got 4.8 out of 5. Podcast Addict says we have about 1,800 subscribers. I have no idea how they're coming up with that number. Um, so who knows how correct it is. Uh, and just again, a couple reviews to point out. I finally found a podcast that strikes my interest and my passion for insects and arthropoda. I'm so glad this came out because I was getting very bored with other podcasts. But then this came out and I was very happy. Uh, and this one, this one really got me. I'm studying entomology through a distance education program and find this podcast helps me feel less alone in my study. I listen and pretend that I am engaging in interesting conversations with other like-minded scientists. Um, Again, it's hard to measure impact, but that like we've touched this person in a, in a, a positive way. Um, but some of the ways that we interact with, say, um, upper administration in our respective universities is maybe maybe not so positive. So I'm going to turn it over to John to talk about how uh, this has been received by by other people. Other administrators, not the ones in the room here today. Uh, so when I started the podcast in 2014 and then when we relaunched it, uh, I do publish my numbers with people that are my administrators. And it is not uh, something that was automatically accepted. It was something that I did get some pushback despite being kind of mandated to do something like this. Uh, the first comment that I got from the dean when he evaluated this and me was it was cute. Uh, and I did not receive that very well. Uh, so you have to remember that if you're going to do something like this, if you're going to kind of push the envelope for science communication, for extension, for outreach, people won't fully understand what you're trying to do at first. Uh, these newer tools of communication, they don't always look like what we traditionally think of as extension. We're very used to extension being, I wrote this extension fact sheet. It has citations. It was peer reviewed. It makes sense to people. A podcast, people don't necessarily understand that it is also peer reviewed that we are peers, that we use research-based information for all of our episodes. 
but we can combat against things like this. Uh, I taught a course on newer extension method uh, about a year ago. And one of the things that we talked about in that show is there were several of the students that wanted to make videos and podcasts and TikToks. Uh, and I told them that if they wanted to do those kinds of things, the first thing to start with is a small script or at least an outline, which can be reviewed by peers at UK. We actually have a new extension system where everything that we generate in extension can go through, whether it's a video, whether it's a fact sheet, whether it's a social media post, even just like a tweet, you can have it reviewed by two people uh, and they will sign off on it and say that it's an official piece of extension publication. It gives us that kind of veracity in a lot of people's eyes. But in order to do that, you need that script, you need that outline that can be reviewed. Some folks do it kind of uh, after the fact. They will send in a podcast or a video and have it reviewed afterwards to say, okay, does it make sense? Uh, those kinds of things. But after it's made, it's a little bit difficult to reshoot an hour-long episode with a Ukrainian entomologist. Uh, so we haven't pursued that particular uh, kind of line. But there are ways that we can kind of combat against this uh, a perception that it's not as research-based if we can cite our material beforehand. There's also been some data from some studies back in 2010. There were some extension professionals that tried to sort of uh, whole cloth substitute their course with podcasts, and they were doing financial education. And at the end, their students reported sort of at the 100% rate that they felt very impersonal. And other people have reported this with podcasts that they feel like, oh, it's, there's a wall between us. Um, some administrators that I've spoken to on this they thought that I was trying to make podcasts so I didn't have to talk to people anymore, uh, that I was going to like replace my personal interactions or replace my meetings that I was doing and just say, well, just listen to this podcast. Uh, I don't want to, uh, please leave me alone. Uh, that was not what I was shooting for. And that's not what any of us are shooting for when we do this. It's a supplement. It's kind of an evergreen piece of material. So we can combat against this by having things like the mailbags. We read the mail on the episodes that when we get them. Uh, we also have a social media presence, so you can build that kind of community, a hub where people can interact. Those are just some of my experiences. Um, I have had a change of heart with some of my administrators. I recently had an associate dean email me like a week ago before we were uh, ready to record a podcast, and he asked me to send him all of my podcast numbers, gave no explanation as to why or what for. Uh, I did it, and then he said, thank you. I still have no idea what he did with that information, but hopefully it was positive. Uh, he, he was asking, so I'm going to believe. But uh, it has changed a little bit, and I hope it continues to do so. The other things that we can do with podcasts, I think Jody is what she's going to outline next. Yeah, so there's a lot of, like, I mean, we use this for public outreach, and we also use this for extension. When it comes to extension, the, the point is to take the information that we've learned through research and extend it and to take it to the people. And so we're delivering this science-based information to our community members, but that doesn't mean that in our community, that's only happening there. So in other communities, I, I know that when I'm looking for something, I mean, whether, whatever it is, I mean, you know, a lot of times people will go to YouTube or, you know, how to hunt or how to do whatever. I go to the podcast and I'm like, what can I listen to that will be interesting for today? You know, uh, there are endless topics for podcasts. There's podcasts about podcasting. So <laughs> everything, right? And so we can respond to dramatic events that happen anywhere. And like, this was just a snapshot on how um, podcasts are being used to communicate science. And I think maybe entomology might have been included in the biology section, but this just shows that you can communicate science because when you look up different topics, there, I mean, there's 
I can't even think there's so many topics. And if you think about, if you listen to podcasts, what your favorite ones are, um, we heard a lot today with the grad students, but you know, these ones are just science. And then 77% were the general public were the audience. And our audience is general public, but we find a lot of uh, grad students in entomology are the ones that are listening and people that um, are associated with an insects somehow. Um, I've been approached and I probably didn't tell these guys for to, to interview on different podcasts because they listen to ours or, um, you know, in person. Like I, I heard your voice and I liked the one you did about Starship Troopers. You should do that more. And I'm like, oh, OK. But, um, you know, these are things that like are not really part of me writing it down to, to, to talk about it because I forget. But, um, you know, and another study showed that um, there is a broad age range, but that not, it's changing. And I think because of the pandemic, people are listening to podcasts and even the older generation are listening to podcasts. Um, I just briefly mentioned when I was uh, talking to Master Gardeners a couple of weeks, because uh, I was talking about arthropods and how insects are arthropods. And I was like, which is also the name of a podcast I host. And everyone wrote it down. And then all these Master Gardeners uh, contacted me the next week and they're like, I kind of like this podcast. Like, why don't you ever talk about it? I'm like, I don't know. I guess I should. Um, so it's, it's, it is changing and it is a really good way to um, introduce the science to people. Um, so when Jonathan talked about uh, uh, creating resources or create there was a study and this was for um, agricultural uh, educators and they showed uh, farmers videos and they also showed them or had them listen to podcasts and what um, was discovered was that there's more production room for podcasting so whereas they may watch a video that's like five minutes long they're more willing to listen to a podcast that's longer so more detailed um, that have the same content. So that's a positive. Um, feedback from that survey was that they need, it needs to be accessible. It needs to be easy to find, right? You know, you hate going, clicking and clicking and trying to figure out how to get things to work. So if it's easy to use, um, it's high quality and it's, it's practical information and non-biased. So if there's a pro and a con to some kind of treatment, uh, to have both of them. So it's not just one-sided. And it really helps and is more effective if it's someone who is well-respected and um, can help co-create it. So if it's for farmers, have a farmer involved in that production. Um, so podcasts are great, I think, because they're free for the users. And again, endless topics. And you can find the style you like, the length of podcasts you like, and like the host. So like sometimes you listen to someone and you're like, that person's annoying. Like I'm not listening to podcasts anymore. Um, and so this is kind of like a right now, like right there, wherever you want to listen. Um, and you can fill your library with just all sorts of things. And sometimes, you know, with extension, it's going to be seasonal. It's going to be the same type of questions. So maybe you're answering those questions before uh, you're community members are asking it. And I think one of the greatest things is you can listen to podcasts like wherever you go, whenever you want. Um, sometimes, you know, I still have a, a list of tick videos or things that I have to watch, but I have to sit there and watch it. Whereas can you just put it in my ear so I can listen to it and learn about things? Um, people feel stimulated when they're doing, um, I want to say semi-automatic tasks, right? Uh, counting 
termites or whatever beetles. And when they're driving, when they're walking, when they're working out, we can't tell you how many times it's like, hey, I was listening to Arthropod while I was doing blank. Like, I don't, I don't even know. Squats. Yes. <laughs> so you can be learning. And I know I'm a, a maximizer. So I'll be like listening to a podcast, playing solitaire, walking on a treadmill and, you know, doing something else at the same time. So that is what podcasts uh, allow. Um, you know, there has been, I think Johnson talked about like if there was an impersonal aspect of it, but there's evidence to show that that hosts and listeners actually have this parasocial relationship with listeners. And I know, I mean, if you're a fan of anyone, you're like, I think I know this person, right? So some of our listeners, they feel like they belong to a club or a community and they'll you know, tend to subscribe and want to hear more. And, and that's really cool when they do end up reaching out. Um, so, and some of our podcasts have been a gateway into entomology. So it helps with the recruiting into our field. Um, we've done, you know, we talked to Crystal. I've had people talk about um, that uh, forensic entomology because everybody loves talking about, about that. Uh, we've had well, students reach out and want to know, how do you become an entomologist? So we did uh, an episode on graduate school. And then I've had people ask me, because I work for UNL, like, how do you get into that online master's program? I'm, I'm like, I don't know, I'm not involved with that, but I can help. And so I bring this information to them. Um, so the good thing is, is that a lot of, like, we welcome anyone to reach out to us if they want to be interviewed or if they have a topic. And also our guests will be very open and you can, you know, make connections that way too. So there's always more information that it, you know, that you can, that listeners can get to learn more. So, you know, at UNL, this is how I'm kind of, uh, evaluated on so it's kind of broad right these are the areas of excellence and so you know if you read this uh, when it comes to engagement and innovation and relevant meaningful impactful um, if these are our metrics then podcasting can be a valuable tool and extension um, it's a great product and it reaches audiences where they are um, it's a very unique learning experience and uh, like I don't know obviously I'm all for podcasting so if you want to make a podcast, we can teach you how to do that here today. We didn't know if that was what people were kind of hoping for. If you all wanted to start a podcast, uh, the bug world is, uh, you know, pretty open. You could do it. Uh, but there may be some other things that you're interested in. Uh, you can do it. Like I said, for relatively cheap, you don't need a ton of technology. It may be things that you already own. How many of you own a USB microphone already? Uh, omnidirectional, very helpful in terms of recording. Snowball microphones, blue snowball microphones are very good. Um, there's others that come with radio arms that you can use. That's the kind that I have. What's your Yeti? Yeti? Okay, we got a Yeti one. And Same. The two Yetis. All right. I thought I was the Yeti uh, in terms of appearance. <laughs> but, uh, I have this big arm one that kind of comes down. They're very powerful. They work really well. They cost anywhere between $50 and $100 depending on how much you want to spend. If you have a laptop or a tablet, you can usually connect them to do the recording. We use a program called Audacity at lunch today. We had some fellow Audacity users uh, that I wanted to give a shout out to. Uh, it's free. It's very powerful uh, audio editing software. Other people use things like GarageBand and a few others, uh, but they help you to cut out some of the noise that you may produce in a show, the breathing that you produce. You'll be very surprised by the number of clicks and things that you do with your tongue as you talk. Jody, what's your least favorite noise? Yeah, that's one. Yeah, that's the one. Uh, and if you say uh or um, all these different sort of filler words, you can cut those out. Uh, and it's also very powerful when you have a guest on because a lot of people, they're very gung-ho when you invite them, 
And then when the mics turn on, they all of a sudden are like freaked out that there's the possibility their words will be recorded for posterity. And you explain whatever you say. If you say something you don't like, we can cut it out afterwards. Um, and we haven't had too many requests for that, but we have been able to edit things that people have requested. We go about our, our publishing in kind of an archaic way. It's something I kind of want to update soon. But what I do is we record the episode. We produce an MP3. I upload it to the Internet Archive. Please go donate to the Internet Archive if you haven't before. They're under a sale uh, by different uh, publishing companies. People are trying to get rid of it. But it's a free place that you can post your podcast. And then you get a piece of HTML code that you can put on a blog to publish it. Um, you can get another link from there that you can put into the show that generates the RSS feed that then populates it on all these different podcatchers. And we publish through Blogger. And then Blogger puts it out into the world and all of the different podcasters put it out for us. A much simpler way to do it, if you're interested, would be to sign up with either Anchor or Zencaster. These are companies that help to either uh, to do recording, editing, and publishing of your podcast. Anchor is through Spotify. I've heard a lot of people really enjoy working with Anchor. And they do have a free option. Zencaster has a pay-for option, so you can get a little more power. Um, if you want to work with something like WordPress, there's Blueberry, which is another publishing arm for podcasts. There's lots of different options if you were really interested in this. But our goal wasn't necessarily to just tell you about podcasts and make all of you podcast fanatics. And we're not prophets of podcasting or anything like that. We just wanted to sort of show that there's all these different ways that we can communicate with the world, right? Science is more needed than ever. It feels like we as a group seem to get more secretive all the time. We hide things from each other. Uh, we don't want to get scooped and all that. The world doesn't trust us as much as it even used to, which wasn't that high in the past necessarily. And if we're willing to meet people where they're actually looking for information, whether it's podcasts, whether it's TikToks, I mentioned my students that all wanted to make these extension TikToks. We have an extension TikTok channel, Kentucky Buds. I never thought I would report that to the dean. They definitely didn't understand what that was all about. And I hear that it's banned here at Purdue University. You can't get on TikTok here. But that's a place where a huge swath of our youth population goes for information. They don't trust Google anymore. That's where they want to learn things from. And if scientists aren't there, if we're not willing to publish on those platforms, then we're going to lose the chance to teach people about all of the amazing science that we do. So I hope that all the students that are here, you realize that you kind of have the power and even the responsibility going forward to figure out how all these cool things that you use to fill your time, even if it's not at work. Um, if you enjoy TikTok or all these different social media places, figure out ways that we can be there with extension and outreach and entomology and teach people about the things that they need to know. Don't be afraid to try it. You'll get pushback, but we just have to figure out how to prove that it works. And I think that's, that's the point of Arthropod at this point. Yeah. So we really appreciate the opportunity to come back to Purdue, to come home and talk with you. This is from Dr. Hobbs' episode. We look all very serious. <laughs> Maybe you were talking about time. <laughs> but it's a, it was a really great episode. And we appreciate you. Are there any questions that we can answer? It's time for our insect heroes to put away their nets and pheromone traps. Join us next time. Same bug time, same bug channel, as the Arthropod Gang make the world safe from poor insect podcasts. Until then, keep on bugging.